tell me, what is the fastest terrestrial animal? The fastest terrestrial animal. And where would you find fentanyl mixed with xylazine? Those are two questions that I'm asking you to answer. Uh, if you know the answer, 514-790-0800. You can, of course, also text your questions, comments, answers to 514-800. I'm Joe Schwartz. I direct McGill University's Office for Science and Society. And uh, my background is in chemistry, which I consider to be this science that ties all the other sciences together. So we can talk about anything that has to do with chemistry, and most things, of course, do. Well, this past week, uh, we finally had the news about the World Health Organization releasing its message about aspartame. And we had been forewarned about this, that uh, the um, WHO, more specifically its uh, arm, the International Agency for Research on Cancer is going to categorize aspartame, the artificial sweetener, as a possible human carcinogen. So we talked about this uh, last week, uh, that this was impending, and now it, it has happened. And I told you last week that I was wondering what uh, new evidence is there uh, that this issue arises. I mean, we've been talking about aspartame since 1981, and why now all of a sudden is it going to be classified as possibly carcinogenic to humans? So, the uh, the paper that essentially uh, swung the pendulum this time uh, is one that, <laughs> as far as I can see, really doesn't add very much to uh, to the controversy, and I don't know why this should have had such an impact. It is. Um, uh, an epidemiological study of over 400,000 Europeans who over about 11 years filled out questionnaires about their diet. And I can never mention dietary questionnaire without adding a corollary to that, saying that um, these are really not very reliable for several reasons. One is that, that people just cannot remember exactly what they ate and what they drank. You know, if you're, you're asked, what did you exactly eat and drink over the last 24 hours? Uh, you don't get accurate answers, mostly because even if people remember what they ate or drank, they, they don't know exact amounts. They don't estimate weights properly. And also, uh, you know, one of the, the uh, recurrent problems here is that very often on these questionnaires, people will tick off boxes about what they think is a healthy diet, what they should have eaten instead of what they actually ate. So anyway, what the researchers looked at um, in, in this epidemiological investigation uh, was uh, consumption of beverages. And what they found was that there was a slight increase in uh, in a type of cancer of the liver in people who drank soft drinks. Now, what was the increase? The general increase or the general incidence of, of this kind of liver cancer in the population is three in every 100,000. Three in every 100,000 people. So obviously, 
this is a very low risk type of, of, of cancer. In the people who consume soft drinks at the rate of seven a week, that incidence was six per 100,000. So it was an increase of three per 100,000, which is a 0.003% increase. Now, in terms of statistical analysis, that is, is uh, essentially insignificant. And this is what was thought to, to swing the pendulum. <laughs> now, another interesting thing here is that what they investigated was soft drink consumption, including sugar-sweetened beverages. And they try to tease out from here the people who consumed diet drinks versus sugar-sweetened beverages, but it really is not, not obvious how they tried to, to, to do that. So uh, hard to know how they came to the conclusion that it was the, the artificially sweetened drinks that were the problem. And of course, the problem is, is, is a, if, if it is a problem at all, it, it's a statistically extremely tiny problem. So now, to underline the fact that, that even the IARC didn't consider this as a significant problem is that the recommendation about the maximum amount of, of aspartame that can be consumed per day was not changed. It's 40 milligrams per kilogram of body weight, which is what it always was. So if there was any perceived increase in, uh, in risk, they did not reflect that by changing the recommendation. So I think what, you know, we have here is a tempest in a, in a teapot. Uh, there really is nothing new in terms of a find. And also, it is always important to point out in a discussion such as this, that what IARC does is a hazard analysis, not a risk analysis. It is just a question of whether or not something is capable of causing cancer under some condition at some dose without taking into account the real life situation of what people may be exposed to. So it is just a question of, is it possible that something can have a carcinogenic effect under some condition? Well, again, based on this rather questionable epidemiological study and some animal studies where animals are fed very high doses, the answer is yes, under some conditions, extreme conditions, there may be some small risk, but it doesn't mean that under normal conditions, normal consumption, that there's any kind of, uh, of an issue. Again, as you know, whenever I talk about these artificial sweeteners, I always follow up with my, my usual statement that while I think there is no carcinogenic risk here, there's no health hazard with these sweeteners, I am not a proponent. And that is because they do not do what they're supposed to do. They have not had an impact on the uh, incidence of obesity. And it's hard to know exactly, you know, why that is. Uh, maybe it's increasing a taste for sweets. It may be people compensating and eating desserts because, you know, they've 
they're satisfied that they had used a sweetener in their coffee, whatever. So the, the artificial sweeteners are not the answer to the, the problem of, uh, of overweight. The uh, overweight issue has to be addressed by a proper balanced diet in which um, calories are cut down. And, you know, no matter what you read about diets, and, you know, there are subtleties about diets, but the bottom line always is that the only way that you can lose weight is to expend more calories than you take in. And there's not a shortcut to that because the laws of thermodynamics are never going to be rescinded. Now, of course, there are subtleties uh, in what kind of diets work the best because we don't metabolize all components of diets the same way. We don't spend the same amount of energy metabolizing carbohydrates as we do fats or as we do proteins. And indeed, you know, we, we do have um, evidence that um, if you reduce your carbohydrate intake significantly, as is the case for keto diets, that uh, affords you a possible way to, to lose weight. And, you know, there's plenty of evidence that people who go on low-carbohydrate diets will lose weight. Again, there's an addendum here. They will lose weight in the short term. Yes, over a couple of months, there can be impressive weight loss. But the problem, as with any kind of diet, is that you cannot stick to it. People just do not eat in such a restricted fashion. Eventually, they will give up the diet. That's why all of the studies about diet show that no matter what kind of diet you try to adhere to, after a year, the results are the same. There is no great effect. People will go back to eating the way that, uh, that they were eating before. Now, of course, there are exceptions to that. There are people who do manage to keep off weight, uh, you know, after a year. But that is, uh, that is not the common situation. Uh, losing weight is a very difficult thing to do, but you have to restrict your caloric intake. That is the, the uh, unfortunately, the simple answer that people don't abide by. Jerry on the line with a possible answer to my question about where you would find fentanyl mixed with xylazine. Hi, Dr. Jerry. Yeah. Hi. Hi. Uh, so uh, under the name either Trank Drug or Zombie Drug, I think. Right. It would be a street drug, as you yeah. know, that's the common parlance. Uh, fentanyl, of course, is a legitimate medication. It is yeah. an excellent painkiller. But it is also abused on the street. And it has become a prime drug of, uh, of abuse. It's terrible the number of people who have become addicted to fentanyl. Mm -hmm. But fentanyl is quite expensive. Whereas xylazine, which is an animal anesthetic, uh, is much cheaper. So these uh, underground chemists have taken to mixing uh, xylazine with fentanyl <laughs> and selling it on the street. And, of course, they're charging the same money as they would for, for fentanyl or for heroin. And they're cutting it with, uh, with xylazine. Right. And it turns out that the mixture of xylazine and fentanyl or xylazine and heroin makes them even more dangerous. 
besides the addiction, uh, you have a toxicity potential here. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's nasty stuff that uh, uh, that the authorities are are dealing with. Okay. So you are correct in well, getting thanks. that right. Okay, thanks. All right, thank you. All right. So we're, I'm still waiting for my uh, other answer. I asked the question, what is the fastest, fastest terrestrial animal? The fastest terrestrial animal. And uh, let me add another question. What are oyster shells made of? What are oyster shells made of? Uh, just to refer back to something I asked last week, I had the question of what is the biggest use of, of helium? And I, a couple of you guys did have the correct answer, but, but I didn't have time to get around to it uh, in answering the text messages. Uh, it is cooling for MRI scanners and NMR spectrometers, which we use in organic chemistry labs. And an MRI scanner uh, makes use of a very large electromagnet. And uh, in order to produce uh, the current uh, in the electromagnet, you have to cool it uh, to reduce the resistance of the wire so that you can have a high enough current to produce the strong magnetic field. And this is the biggest use of, uh, of helium, uh, not balloons as some people have uh, suggested. Now, of course, the use of helium for MRI scanners and, and in other laboratory equipment is, is critical. And uh, there uh, are, of course, still deposits of helium um, in the ground. Helium is a gas, and it forms wherever there's uranium in the soil because it's one of the breakdown, the radioactive breakdown products of, of uranium. But, but uh, uh, the amount of uh, helium, though, is limited, and we are slowly... Uh, running out of it. So we have to uh, conserve our helium and, uh, you know, using it for party balloons is not, uh, is not a good way to, uh, to go with, with helium. Okay. I think we have Gregory on the line also who may have an answer to the other question. Gregory. Hello. Gregory. Gregory, you can't listen Hello? to the radio and talk to me at the same time. Hello? Hello? Yes, go ahead. Hi, Joe. How are you? Okay. Um, you said fastest land animal, correct? Yes. What is it? So, I believe it's an emu. The emu? Yeah. No, it's oh. not. The okay. emu is up there in speed, but uh, there's something that will beat the emu in a race. Okay, so I'm still after what that is. All right, thanks for calling. Um, this past week, uh, there was a question that I had to answer many times. And this was about the prime energy drinks. A uh, lot of publicity about that this week because Canada uh, withdrew uh, the prime energy drink from uh, circulation uh, with the complaint that it contained too much caffeine. And uh, this is a very interesting story. Uh, This beverage, this prime energy drink, has become very popular in in recent months. 
because of two influencers who I must say I had never heard of before, <laughs> before this uh, story, uh, because uh, I, I don't do much Instagram and, uh, uh, you know, I got to draw the line somewhere. I, I do Facebook, but I don't do Instagram. I don't tweet. Uh, so I had never heard of Logan Paul or this guy called KSI. Uh, KSI stands for Knowledge, Strength, and Integrity. His real name is Olajde Olayinka Williams Olatunji. But I guess KSI is easier to say. He's a British rapper, boxer. Uh, Logan Paul is, a, is an American. Uh, he's an actor, boxer, wrestler. Uh, and both of these guys are hot on, on uh, Instagram and uh, I guess other sort of platforms where they promote this beverage called Prime. And uh, the American version of this contains 200 milligrams of caffeine. Now, that exceeds the amount that is allowed in Canada for a beverage. And uh, the company that makes Prime says that, that the version that they sell in Canada actually conforms Canadian laws and doesn't have 200 uh, milligrams. But there are some people who are illegally importing the beverage from, from the U.S., and that's what caused the, the controversy. Anyway, I mean, 200 milligrams is not, not lethal. It's not uh, toxic. It's what you would find in about two cups of coffee or in two Red Bulls. Uh, but in this case, people, you know, drink this prime very quickly. So you get a hit of the 200 milligrams quickly instead of sipping two cups of, of, of coffee. Uh, what's the risk? Well, it can cause palpitations. It can drive up the blood pressure. It can, you know, kind of make you anxious. And the, the, the problem here is that this is being promoted to young people, mostly to teenagers and, and young boys. They are the ones who are the fans of, of, uh, of Logan Paul and, and KSI. And certainly that is a lot of caffeine for, uh, for any, uh, youngster. Uh, this, this recall, uh, I guess was done out of, out of that concern that kids should not be drinking this. And that is exactly who the advertising is, uh, is targeting. And you know that, uh, uh, these people have become heroes. I, I don't really understand why. Uh, apparently they've had a boxing match against each other. Uh, but now they have made peace. And they have joined up to form this company that sells this uh, energy drink. And energy drinks uh, are a hot beverage these days. They sell a, lo a lot. Uh, I mean, Red Bull, of course, is the the prime one. And, you know, you, you can imagine how much Red Bull is being sold when you know that they sponsor an F1 car and you know what the cost of that is, you know, uh, Per race, I mean, just the, the pit crew uh, and all of the technology involved there are huge amounts of money. So there's a lot of money to be made with these energy uh, beverages. And also, uh, there's a lot of hype about this. I mean, the energy comes from the, the caffeine. Uh, you know, they uh, these beverages also contain taurine. They contain glucuronolactone. They contain theanine. All of this, you know, in, in theory can have some benefit, but when you look at the studies uh, that show some sort of, of uh, benefit in terms of energy production, 
those studies use far, far greater amounts of those chemicals than or what are present in these uh, energy beverages. So uh, the only uh, energetic chemical in here is, is the caffeine. And so there's nothing special about these beverages. You can get your caffeine from any, any source, but 200 milligrams of caffeine in one shot uh, is certainly too much for uh, for young people, but uh, uh, KSI and, and uh, Paul have have become internet heroes, and uh, children will follow heroes. You know whether they be sports performers or whether they be YouTubers. And uh, so uh, obviously I'm not a fan of this prime energy drink. Uh, the best thing to drink is water. Uh, nobody needs the energy drinks. If, if you are really exercising a great deal, you might need a sports beverage like, you know, Gatorade or Prime also produces its own version of a sports drink. That's okay, but not the Prime energy drink. Angelo. Yes, hi, Dr. Joe. Uh, hi. Is it the link, uh, the, the cheetah, the fastest animal? Yes, you're right. Cheetah is the world's fastest I have a couple animal. of other questions, sorry. They're okay. Okay. Uh, in the batteries for the cars, the lithium batteries that they're making a lot, are those, is that the recyclable or are the batteries all recyclable? In theory, they are recyclable. Okay. But at this point, at, at this point, they are not being recycled because it's uh, the recycling them is is too expensive. Okay, but in, and the, uh, in, can in the long run, yes, they can be. Yeah. Okay, and in in Ontario, they're buying ten uh, can do reactors because their uh, hydro is uh, is maxed. And the can do reactor, since it's natural uranium, how come there's no more? Other countries are not buying it for to, to solve their uh, electricity. Oh, they are. Oh, they are. France, eighty percent of the power in France comes from nuclear reactors. Oh, okay. Uh, there are many countries that have nuclear reactors and more should have. I mean, this in the long run, uh, this is going to be the answer to our energy problems. Okay. While, for, while for sure, you know, wind power, solar power, tidal power can make a contribution, but they will never be able to uh, totally meet our uh, energy needs. We will need nuclear and nuclear can be produced safely. Of course, nothing can be guaranteed to be 100% and safe. I mean, you know, but we've learned lessons from Fukushima. We've learned lessons from Chernobyl so that, uh, that those kind of accidents are not likely to happen again. But anytime that you're dealing with high technology, uh, you know, things can happen. But, you know, you should also realize that, that uh, coal mining is not a safe profession either, you know, and a, a lot more people have died in coal mining than ever with nuclear accidents. So, yeah, nuclear, I think, is the, is the way of, um, of the future. Thank you. Okay. All right. Thanks. All right. Uh, so we had the answer to that. Uh, and uh, I asked the question about what oyster shells are made of. I did get an answer to that as well online. Uh, oyster shells, of course, are made of calcium carbonate. Calcium carbonate. Uh, let me follow up that up with a related question. Uh, 
calcium carbonate is also the material of which an item that is commonly used in jewelry is made. What is that item commonly used in jewelry that is made of calcium carbonate? If you know the answer to that, 514-790-0800. And of course, you can always text to 514-800. Now I want to tell you a little story. And it's about when I first came to Montreal, which was in 1956. And one of the first things I discovered was that I would not be going to the movies. You know why? Because children at the time were just not allowed into movie theaters here. What a strange country, I thought, to prohibit children from having fun. Of course, as I later found out, the ruling had nothing to do with what was on the film. Rather, it had to do with what was in the film. That is, what the film itself was made of. There had been a horrendous fire in Montreal in 1927 at the Palace Theatre. 78 children died. And the culprit was cellulose nitrate film, which had burst into flames in the projection booth. A law was passed in 1928, making it illegal for children to go to the movies. There's actually a monument in the Mount Royal Cemetery uh, to this catastrophic uh, event. In the early days of photography, the silver compounds which changed color on exposure to light were coated onto glass plates or paper. These were difficult to work with, and a major improvement came in 1885 when George Eastman found a way to coat a transparent plastic film with the light-sensitive crystals. The film was made of celluloid, which actually was the world's first plastic. It was made by treating cellulose, essentially cotton, with a mixture of nitric and sulfuric acids to form cellulose nitrate. When this was mixed with camphor, dissolved in alcohol, and the alcohol allowed to evaporate, celluloid film was formed. The flexibility of this film allowed for the development of moving pictures by Thomas Edison in 1891. But there was a problem. Cellulose nitrate was highly flammable and the heat from a projector bulb could easily set it aflame. Now Edison did not project the films. He had uh, what he called a kinetoscope. You had to look into this machine and crank a handle to move the film. But the Lumiere brothers in France found a way to shine light through the film to project it. And that's where the problem was. Cellulose nitrate was highly flammable and the heat from the projector bulb could easily set it aflame. And there were a number of disastrous fires, both in movie houses and in celluloid factories. In response to the fire hazard, Eastman developed what was known as safety film. This was based on cellulose acetate, material made by treating cellulose with acetic acid. This plastic was far less flammable than celluloid. It took many years until celluloid was replaced by acetate in the movie industry, but by the time color film appeared, it was all acetate. By 1948, acetate film had become the industry standard. There was a problem, though, that acetate shared with celluloid. Neither of these materials aged well. Celluloid actually undergoes a slow burn when in contact with air, and within a couple of decades begins to turn yellow and decay. Acetate releases acetic acid, which eats away at the film. This has been called vinegar syndrome, 
and the reason for its name is apparent to anyone who opens an old film canister. Polyester film made its appearance in 1960. It doesn't degrade readily, but it's harder to splice and therefore to edit. Many of our older films are slowly degrading. Of course, this doesn't mean they will be lost because they have all been transferred to newer films or to videotape. Nobody knows, however, how long videotape will last. It may not matter because now films, of course, are being transferred to DVDs and, of course, they are also being digitally recorded. And, uh, of course, uh, there are issues with that, too. We don't know exactly how long all of that digital storage will last, but at least the flammability problem has been extinguished. Today, children, of course, are allowed to go to movies, and we worry more about what's on the film than the film's composition. Indeed, by the late 1950s, children in Montreal were again allowed to enjoy the moving pictures. And in retrospect, then I realized that the first movie I ever saw in Canada, The Ten Commandments, was filmed on cellulose acetate, not on celluloid. That's why I was allowed in. It was a pretty good film, right? I've seen it... Uh, many, many times uh, since, that, um, since that time. Now, today, of course, we are in a totally different uh, age. We are in the digital age, and uh, cameras have become digital, so almost nothing is now shot on film. Uh, the big movies that uh, we see today are all digitally shot. And, uh, of course, digital photography has become extremely, extremely uh, good. Uh, the colors are vibrant, true to, true to life. And uh, the flammability problem, of course, has, uh, has been solved. All right. I did ask that question about uh, what else is made of uh, calcium carbonate. And uh, a number of people, of course, knew the answer right away. Uh, it is the pearl that is made of uh, calcium carbonate, which is used in, in jewelry. And sometimes even oyster shells are, are, are made into jewelry called nacre uh, jewelry. So calcium carbonate, of course, is uh, uh, found elsewhere too. It is what you find in Tums, for example, which is uh, as an antacid because calcium carbonate will it being a base will neutralize the hydrochloric acid in your stomach. Calcium carbonate plus uh, HCl will give you calcium chloride plus CO2. And this is why you burp when you use calcium carbonate to neutralize your uh, stomach uh, acid. Uh, calcium carbonate is um, also used in chalk, like blackboard chalk. And uh, I used to use a lot of blackboard chalk because when I uh, was teaching organic chemistry in the uh, pre-PowerPoint days, uh, of course, we used chalk on the blackboard. I still favor that. I, I, uh, I, I think when it comes to uh, displaying organic chemical reactions and writing mechanisms, I, I, I think uh, the blackboard works well because it slows you down enough so that students can follow it better. When you do PowerPoint, you tend to go very fast. All right, I'm going to go back to 2013 with you guys. When there was big news from Maastricht University, that's in the Netherlands. Headlines, Dr. Mark Post 
introduces a hamburger that did not come from a slaughtered cow. Well, that hamburger was made from harvesting cells cultured in stacks of Petri dishes for two years in uh, post-slab. Well, this was still an animal product in the sense that the original cells came from a biopsy taken from the shoulder of a cow. And boy, did that burger come with a hefty price. Get ready for this. $325,000. Well, the two food critics who had the privilege of tasting that burger gave it a pass for taste, but noted its lack of juiciness since it was made from muscle cells and contained no fat. Animal welfare activists and environmentalists celebrated the experiment, while cattle ranchers complained that the meaning of meat was being hijacked, since the very definition of meat is that it comes from the flesh of an animal. All right, well, this business of culturing cells, that traces all the way back to 1907, when American zoologist Ross Granville Harrison isolated nerve cells from the embryo of a frog and found that these cells multiplied when they were immersed in lymph fluid. That method was improved on by French surgeon Alexis Carrel, who substituted blood plasma for lymph and managed to keep cells taken from chick embryo hearts alive and growing for years. Well, that claim, however, was challenged by American microbiologist Leonard Hayflick, who maintained correctly that normal cells have a finite proliferative capacity. Carroll said, uh, or at least uh, uh, Hayflick said that Carroll must have introduced some living cells via the plasma medium that he was constantly adding to the culture. Anyway, by the time that Dr. Post made history by serving the most expensive dish ever, many of the details of tissue culture had been worked out by researchers who investigated different cell lines, including stem cells that can develop into muscle or fat cells, and they also identified the specific amino acids, sugars, vitamins, minerals, and growth factors that cells need to multiply. At that point, a number of startups got into the game, hoping to eventually commercialize cultured meat. The first problem was what to call the newfangled product. Opinion was that lab-grown meat and in vitro meat and terms like that would scare consumers. Cultivated meat, cell-based meat, and clean meat were considered, but the consensus was that cultured meat was the description that would fly. And its takeoff was in 2020 in Singapore, the first country in the world to approve the sale of cultured meat, making a prediction made nine decades earlier come true. Well, who was the seer who had made that prediction? None other than Winston Churchill, who in 1931 prophesied that in the future, now I'm going to quote from an essay that he wrote. We shall escape the absurdity of growing a whole chicken in order to eat the breast or wing by growing these parts separately under a suitable medium. The American company, Good Meat, made that happen 
although it did not exactly grow wings and breasts. The product was more like ground meat. This, however, can be compacted into fillets, much like is done with chicken nuggets. Philo puff pastry with cultured chicken and black bean puree was the version served in Singapore at restaurant 1880, which has a reputation for innovation and social consciousness. But the chicken was priced at a fraction of the cost of its production. For now, cost is a major issue. The nutrients needed are expensive, as are the large stainless steel vessels needed to culture the cells. Those vessels, called bioreactors, can be seen through a glass wall at a restaurant called The Chicken that's in Tel Aviv. And it is the second restaurant in the world to serve cultured chicken. It belongs to the Israeli company Supermeat and serves crispy chicken filet on a semi-sweet brioche bun. Another Israeli company, Aleph Farms, is more ambitious and is on the verge of producing a steak by coaxing stem cells to differentiate into muscle, fat, and connected tissue cells that then grow on a plant-based microscopic scaffolding that replicates the muscle fibers of conventional meat. The U.S. is the latest country to hop on the bandwagon, with the Food and Drug Administration Department of Agriculture having approved cultured meat. And there's a restaurant in San Francisco called Bar Kren that is going to start selling cell-cultivated meat, as they will call it. This is made by the Upside Company. That's, again, an American company. And in Washington, there's a restaurant, China Chilcano, that is set to serve good meats chicken, the same one that is being sold in, uh, uh, in the uh, Singapore uh, restaurant. Well, for now, cultured meat is actually more of a curiosity than anything else since it cannot yet be produced on a large scale. Bioreactors of the size that you need for commercialization are just not available. And they are, you know, uh, grossly expensive to make. However, the potential environmental benefits are such that scaling up production is a worthy challenge. Why? Because animal agriculture accounts for about 15% of all greenhouse gas emissions, beef being by far the biggest culprit. Most of the corn and soybean that is grown in the world goes towards feeding animals and large tracts of land end up being deforested to grow these crops and to make room for feedlots. Far more water is needed to raise animals and to make cultured meat. And of course, the latter never requires the use of antibiotics. Furthermore, animals are not an efficient way to meet our protein needs. For example, it takes nine calories of feed to get one calorie of meat from a chicken. But the truth is that cultured meat has its issues as well. A lot of energy is needed to run the bioreactors. So there is a green, you know, energy footprint there too. Uh, and some consumers, of course, will never make peace with what they call a franken food. And when it comes to taste, well, of course, I haven't tasted it yet. But uh, I doubt that the taste of a black Angus steak is going to be uh, challenged. Now, there's another further thought that I have here, 
And, you know, while I appreciate the technology uh, used here, and I think that there is a, uh, there is room in the marketplace for this cultured meat, but why so much emphasis on this instead of just promoting a diet that features plant proteins, which is far cheaper and probably far healthier than eating animal foods? So that's uh, the, the story. It's interesting to see that Churchill's prediction of 1931 came true Although not exactly correctly, we still cannot grow chicken wings or chicken breast, but we can certainly make uh, chicken nuggets.